Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional health care for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for a very special masterclass on how to prevent and reverse memory loss. My name is Britt with Forum Health, the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers of which Dr. Montaba was a part of. For those of you not familiar, Forum Health goes beyond traditional healthcare by combining functional and integrative medicine with advanced treatments and technology, data analytics, and collaborative relationships to offer our patients personalized and transformative results. Our patients have exclusive access to breakthrough treatments, results-driven wellness programs, health content, and a team of experts to partner with you on your journey to a healthy and vibrant life. To learn more, visit us at forumhealth.com. All right, let's get started. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Jessica Montavo of Forum Health Wheaton. Dr. Montavo has over 12 years of experience in medicine and continued to expand her knowledge in cognitive decline by completing Dr. Dale Bredesen's training in reversing cognitive decline, known as the RECODE program. She is passionate about reversing cognitive decline, treating chronic infections, and managing mold-related and tick-borne illnesses. Welcome, Dr. Montavo. Thank you so much. Good to be here tonight, Britt, and good evening, everybody. Uh, as you already know, my name is Jessica Montalvo, um, and I am a physician um, in Wheaton, Illinois at Forum Health. I'm really excited to be hosting this webinar tonight on memory loss, how it is, in fact, not something inevitable in our lives, but something that we actually have a lot of control over. I'm gonna start off by giving a little bit of my background and just how I came to be here. And then we're going to actually talk about what dementia is and what Alzheimer's is. We're gonna focus on the different factors that can lead to Alzheimer's when they are unchecked. And from there, we're gonna talk about what a diagnostic and treatment plan should look like. We will look at some research findings and hear a couple of short patient stories. So my base training is in internal medicine. Um, you know, when I was a medical student, I, I just knew that internal medicine was really the right field for me. I love the complexity of the many different body systems, everything working together. And I was just kind of hooked. Uh, and I did my internal medicine residency at Northwestern here in the Chicago area. Um, I was a hospital medicine physician for a long time and in oncology, and I was also working in palliative care as well. And I was in those fields for over 10 years and really taking care of people who, you know, were in the hospital, they were at home sometimes. Um, and really by 2015, I was starting to think about my next step. I, you know, was really feeling like I wasn't kind of fulfilling that initial goal I had to really treat illness and, and really do that in a way where I might be reversing what was going on with somebody. So I started the soul search and I was exploring medical practice from different angles. And eventually I found functional medicine. Um, and I really think that functional medicine is a systems-based approach to finding the root cause of someone's illness. Uh, one of the fathers of functional medicine is Dr. Sidney Baker and basically said that, you know, if you have a tack in your shoe, that's causing pain in the foot, you can either take medication to dull the pain or you can remove the tack. So functional medicine is all about really trying to remove the tacks. While I was completing my training through the Institute for Functional Medicine and the Cresser Institute, I came across this book by Dr. Dale Bredesen called The End of Alzheimer's. And I was obviously pretty intrigued by that title. Um, in my training as a student, as a resident, no one had ever talked about Alzheimer's disease having an end. We learned how to recognize it. We learned how to make a diagnosis and then prepare people for getting sicker. So we're gonna talk a lot more about Dr. Bredesen in a bit, um, but this book really impacted me. And in my work in the hospital and in palliative care, I have seen many people in various stages of Alzheimer's and I've seen what it does to the fabric of families. Um, this book really laid out the science as to why this could all be going a different way. And it gave me a lot of hope. And I decided I wanted to get better at treating this. So I pursued that specialty training, which as uh, Britt said, uh, the RECODE program. 
And so I want to take a moment to just define a couple terms. You know, what exactly is dementia? This word really refers to a group of conditions. And what these conditions have in common is that they all involve problems with thinking, memory or social interaction, um, as well as you know, anything that's really kind of going to interfere with daily living, not being able to, to go to work, not really being able to manage your own affairs. So what is Alzheimer's disease? Well, this is a type of dementia. Uh, it's the leading cause of dementia worldwide, and it's named after the doctor who uh, first really found this in 1906. Um, he was studying the brain tissue of a, a woman who had died of a mysterious illness. Um, her symptoms included memory loss, uh, language problems, and just unpredictable behavior. And so Dr. Alzheimer showed that there was an accumulation of a protein called amyloid that ultimately caused death of brain cells. And that's really one of the major features of this condition. The diagnostic and the treatment approach that we're discussing this evening really mainly relates to Alzheimer's dementia. That being said, clinicians are starting to apply some of the same principles to dementia from other conditions, and such as Parkinson's or um, ALS. We don't have time to go into detail about all those conditions tonight, but there definitely have been some interesting anecdotal experiences so far. So in the US alone, there are more than 6 million people living with Alzheimer's dementia. And by 2050, that number is going to look more like 13 million. Uh, the financial burdens to the healthcare system and the country as a whole are staggering. Uh, but really, instead of focusing on those figures, I wanna think about the cost to individuals and families. Um, I can share my personal experience about what it costs to care for someone once they can no longer manage themselves. Um, my mother you know, was diagnosed uh, with a brain tumor and eventually got to the point where she needed 24 seven care including basic needs care like toileting and dressing. And when she was living in a senior apartment with caregivers, that cost was around $11,000 per month. Now in a nursing facility with a shared room, that cost is about $7,000 a month. I'm quite lucky she has a pension to help pay for this. Uh, many people don't have that. And I am bringing this up because Alzheimer's dementia is an illness that often goes on for years. And for every year that you have this diagnosis, there's a higher risk that your function will deteriorate to the point that you're gonna need the kind of assistance that my mother does. And Alzheimer's really can bankrupt people and it does. Um, and it just doesn't have to be this way. There are more than 11 million people in this country who are providing unpaid care for people with Alzheimer's or, or other dementias. And this means that those people are less able to work outside the home when a family member has Alzheimer's. I have seen many situations during my home visits where people had to quit jobs because a loved one needed a caregiver. Um, and this is gonna impact their ability to afford housing, to pay for insurance, the amount of emotional distress that these caregivers go through is substantial. They are more likely themselves to have serious health problems. And this is really, to me, a crisis situation. So whatever we can do to turn this tide, I, I think we really need to do. So as you're hearing this, you, you, know, you may be wondering, how is it that we discovered this disease over 100 years ago, and yet we still have such poor outcomes with it? Why is it so hard to cure this disease? It comes down to an oversimplification of what is actually going wrong. I promise you we would get back to Dr. Dale Bredesen. So he's a neuroscientist researcher. Uh, he's based at UCLA. And he completed a neurology residency at Duke. He went into the lab right away with the goal of being part of a team that was going to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Like many of his colleagues, he was focused on finding that magic bullet, the drug or the pharmaceutical intervention that was going to fix the whole process. And over many years of research, he helped discover no fewer than 36 different pathways that can be involved in Alzheimer's. Now, a really awesome pharmaceutical drug can target at most two, maybe three pathways. That's if it's really good. So this is why we are never going to have a single drug or vaccine or whatnot that is going to cure this disease. As Dr. Bredesen likes to say, it's kind of like having a house. The roof has 36 holes and you try to plug two or three of the holes, but the roof is still gonna leak. You need to figure out a way to impact all of the pathways simultaneously. And it turns out that to do that is gonna involve nutrition, lifestyle, 
and targeted interventions to resolve the underlying causes that are pushing those pathways in the wrong direction. And in partnership with his wife, who is an integrative medicine physician, Dr. Bredesen put together an approach to work on all of those pathways. I think the most important thing that I learned from Dr. Bredesen's RICO training is that Alzheimer's dementia happens because the brain is trying to protect itself from something or some things. I'm gonna say that again, because this is really a crucial point. Alzheimer's is the result of a protective response in the brain that goes haywire. And what do I mean by that? When that amyloid builds up in a certain way, it's telling the neurons, our brain cells, to stop living and start dying. So we have to ask, why would the brain produce this dangerous protein in the first place? And we're gonna answer that over the next couple slides. To get ahead of Alzheimer's and potentially reverse the early stages, we have to characterize the main drivers that are causing cognitive decline in each person. The great news is that if we can see what is going on in the body and the brain, we can stop it. We are no longer powerless. And in Dr. Bredesen's model, we recognize six subtypes of cognitive decline. Inflammatory, glycotoxic, toxic, vascular, and traumatic. And I see that a trophic uh, was left out of there. That's our sixth one. And we're going to go into a bit of detail about each one. So inflammation is really a normal response to anything that our body sees as abnormal. And this can be tissue damage, like when we cut ourselves with the kitchen knife, you're cutting up your vegetables. It can be an infectious invader, like a bacteria or a virus. It turns out that low-grade chronic inflammation can, you know, really be detrimental, you know, to the brain. And it's like a constant little fire that's going. The bacteria in our mouth are actually particularly famous for being part of this response. Um, a lot of viruses that live in our body lifelong can reactivate and, and cause ongoing inflammation. Infections like Lyme disease are increasingly recognized as a contributor to cognitive decline. You know, when the brain sees a bacteria or a virus, it says, you don't belong here. You know, this is my space. And the brain has its own immune system. And the immune system says, all right, there's something that doesn't belong here. We're going to produce some amyloid. Because it turns out that amyloid is really good at killing bacteria and killing viruses. It kind of smothers them to death. The problem is that if the brain is constantly having to defend itself against invaders, eventually this system gets us in trouble because that amyloid ends up killing brain cells. And inflammation is the reason that we talk about a gene called ApoE4. I'm sure a lot of you listening tonight have heard of this gene. It turns out that people who have ApoE4, one or two copies, are going to have a much higher risk of developing Alzheimer's compared to people who do not. What does ApoE4 do? Well, it interacts with many genes that all work to promote inflammation, which this means that any kind of an inflammatory response that an ApoE4 person has is gonna be way stronger and way harder to get rid of than the inflammatory responses for people who don't have that genotype. And this is one reason that Alzheimer's can run in families sometimes. The inflammation response is not limited to infections, though. It also happens when we eat too much sugar. And this is going to bring us really to our next subtype, um, what we call glycotoxic. So let's break this down a little bit. Um, the reality is that as humans, we did not evolve to tolerate a lot of sugar, you know, maybe about 15 grams a day. And that's about half a can of soda, regular soda. So Dr. Bredesen talks about sugar being a lot like fire. It's a source of energy, but it's very dangerous. If you have a large house that you heat with a fireplace, you're going to need a lot of wood and, and a big fire. If your house is small, you need you know just a little bit of wood and a small fire. With our typical American lifestyle, our energy needs are a lot like that small house situation. We live a more sedentary life than our ancestors did. So when we eat lots of sugar, it's like putting tons of wood on the small fire. Eventually that fire gets big and it takes down the house. The body sees sugar really as a poison if there's too much of it around. Many of you know the term blood glucose. That's 
really the scientific way of talking about sugar roaming around. And glucose is unfortunately a bad actor when it comes to the brain. In general, it's very sticky as sugars can be. It attaches itself to lots of cells and proteins in our blood. That's gonna impact how well those cells and proteins can work. And it also makes those cells and proteins look like invaders. And we know what happens with invaders. The immune system gets going, now we have inflammation and that amyloid protein gets going. And the story gets even a little more complicated. The body will make insulin to respond to this blood sugar because it wants to get it out of the blood as soon as possible, it doesn't want it to sit there. But after a while, the body will get deaf to the insulin signal. So even if you have insulin around, there's still gonna be all this sugar in the blood. And this creates a really interesting problem for the brain um, because once the body you know, has made insulin, the body's got to eventually get rid of it. It doesn't want the blood sugar to get too low because that would endanger our lives. And in the brain, the enzyme that breaks down insulin is also responsible for breaking down that amyloid protein. So that means if you have a lot of insulin around all the time because you're running a high blood sugar and your body's always trying to clear it out, well, now your brain is not gonna be able to break down that amyloid protein very well because that enzyme is being kept busy with the insulin situation. So on top of all of that, now you have this insulin resistance situation and the brain cells, they need nourishment, but because the body in general has now become deaf to the insulin signal, that sugar can't get into the brain cells. So you have this crazy situation where all of this you know, sugar, but the brain cells are sort of starving. They're, they're really not getting the nutrition that they need. And we're going to come back to this point when we start to think about how can we tweak nutrition to help us with cognitive decline. So we're coming into our next subtype here, which is atrophic. Um, and really, this is all about growth factors. The brain is a huge network of neurons. That's what our brain cells are called. And these cells communicate with each other with very special connections called synapses. You can think about this like a bunch of roads. Uh, some of them are small country lanes. Some of them are huge highways. It takes a lot to maintain this network. You, know, you think about how often when you're out driving, you see road construction and repair crews. And the neurons have their own maintenance crew. But that maintenance crew depends on having enough factors for growth. The scientific name for that is trophic factors. And these are things like vitamin D, vitamin B12, thyroid hormone, and estrogen, just to name a few. If we don't have enough trophic factors, the brain decides to downsize. And that makes sense when you think about it. The brain is concerned with survival. It will maintain critical abilities like heartbeat, breathing, eating. If there aren't enough resources though to keep everything going, the brain doesn't care so much about that movie you saw last week. It will see that memory as expendable. This is kind of like the chief financial officer of the company deciding that they need to fire some employees to make ends meet. And how do you think the brain does this downsizing? You know, once again, we, we come back to amyloid. The brain will use it to prune connections that it does not think are necessary. So the moral of the story here is that you don't want the brain to feel the need to do this. We need to make sure that the brain has everything it needs to maintain synapses. This is probably the easiest aspect of cognitive decline for all of us to work on. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to diagnosis and treatment. So toxic is a really, really interesting um, subtype and really probably much newer um, when we think about you know, these other you know, issues that I've been talking about, we've known about them in the science for quite a while. And I think toxins are in some ways the newer kid on the block here. In the last decade, they've really been increasingly recognized as a driver of cognitive decline. And these toxins can include heavy metals like mercury, copper, lead, and cadmium. Um, those are some of the big ones. Uh, mercury can basically build up if you are eating tons and tons of really large fish, you know, people who are eating sushi uh, five times a week. Um, it can also build up in the brain because of dental fillings. Uh, many of us um, who got cavities and fillings um, are, you know, going to have metal in our mouths. The uh, American Dental Association has 
you know, lately finally been moving away from this. And I'm really glad to see that, but that doesn't change the fact that most of us um, who had fillings earlier in life are probably going to have metal in our mouth. Lead can also, you know, be present of obviously paint in old homes. It can be in water, as we have, you know, seen in too many news stories about cities like Flint, Michigan. Cadmium is something that you'll often find in cigarette smoke. Um, this category, though, goes beyond just heavy metals. It also includes biotoxins. And this is probably a new term for many people here. Um, what it means, biotoxins, is just that they come from living entities like bacteria or mold. And as that name suggests, they are toxic to us. Mycotoxins, in particular, you know, are bad, and they come from mold. The concept of mold illness is a much more recent discovery. Uh, Dr. Richard Shoemaker first proposed this syndrome in the 1990s. He was taking care of patients who had a lot of strange symptoms, including cognitive decline. And it turned out that many of them were living in water damaged homes. And in that situation, you can get into trouble by inhaling the mold spores and the toxins that they produce. And what do you think happens when the brain sees those toxins, when it sees that metal buildup? Once again, that immune system says, you know, you don't belong here, we have to neutralize you. And so once again, you're gonna get that amyloid production. And you, as you see, there's a, a bit of a theme here. So in our next subtype, vascular, we're really alluding to the reality that blood vessels are just essential. Um, you know, they, this is how we get nutrients and oxygen everywhere in the body. What happens when blood can no longer move efficiently through those blood vessels? In the situation of the brain, you're gonna end up getting this breakdown response. And that makes sense. Those neurons are under stress. If they're not getting enough blood, they're underfed and they're being deprived of oxygen. Again, the brain is all concerned with survival. It's not trying to keep around cells that are dead weight. If the cells are weak, it doesn't wanna spend the resources on them. So that immune system is gonna look at those cells that aren't getting a lot of blood and say, again, we kind of need to get rid of you. We're gonna be producing some amyloid and this is gonna kind of choke things off. That amyloid acts like a distress signal to the neighboring cells as well. And so those cells may see, wow, it's like, look what's happening over there. Maybe we're also you know, not doing so well. And, so, and then those processes can actually start to break down, um, which may sound a little bit crazy, but, but there is a very like real sort of neighboring cell effect that can happen here. And obviously if those neighboring cells are also deciding that they should be ceasing function, well, this isn't good news for the memories, right? We tend to think about this subtype more like our inflammatory subtype. We have to, you know, be, be treating, you know, this response to get that amyloid production down. And we kind of come now to, you know, sort of our final subtype, um, which, you know, would be appropriately named traumatic. And really, it's quite striking that head trauma is finally being recognized as a really significant risk factor for cognitive decline and dementia. Um, and why would that be? Um, well, unfortunately, it turns out that there are other substances besides amyloid that can accumulate in the brain and disturb the neurons and their connections. And in the case of trauma, a substance called phosphatau tends to be the main culprit. Physical trauma actually destroys those synapse connections that I was talking about when we were talking about that atrophic subtype. And I'm defining head trauma very broadly here. Um, and I, I want everyone to really be aware that trauma doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you were a prize boxer in a fighting ring. Um, it can be professional sports. And certainly we have seen football players have increased problems with cognition um, due to being sport, being football players. But this also pertains to people who fall and hit their head, maybe people who are even just recreationally playing sports. If you've had a motor vehicle accident, um, recreational vehicle accident, there's a lot of ways that, that you can unfortunately experience head trauma. And it's, this is a really important history point, you know, that we need to be aware of, because if you've had head trauma, this may alter some of our treatment recommendations. So now that we have a good overview of the many areas that can contribute to cognitive decline, let's start to think about a roadmap for diagnosis and treatment. 
First of all, it's very important that we make sure the person in question has symptoms that are most consistent with Alzheimer's. Remember, I talked about earlier, there are other diseases that can cause dementia. We need to make sure that we're not dealing with something else like Parkinson's disease or frontotemporal dementia. These have different sort of treatment paths. Once we have a good clinical history and we're pretty sure that this is likely a cognitive decline that's more of an Alzheimer's type, we need to do some screening with a validated tool. I like to use the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Other people like to use slums. Um, these are tools that allow us to get a sense of how severe are the symptoms. Are we in an, an earlier subjective cognitive decline situation? Can we actually see that people are no longer performing well on these memory screens? And I use these tools to follow progress. Um, in my office, I also like to use uh, CNS vital signs. This is an even more in-depth look at what kind of deficits somebody might have. And that can be in things like processing, um, you know, sort of speed, recognition of, of faces or, you know, other social skills. It's a very you know, interesting assessment. Those of you who, if any of you have an Apollo account um, on Dr. Bredesen's site, you have access to CNS vital signs and you can actually be doing periodic assessments yourself. I think the next thing is then you have to sort of ask yourself two questions. What are the main factors that are driving cognitive decline and how can we best help the brain heal? We're actually gonna talk about that second question for the next couple of slides. So many people are somewhat familiar with the ketogenic diet but I want to get more precise about what this is. In general, a ketogenic diet means that you're getting about 65 to 70% of calories from fat per day. Most people eating this way get about 15 to 20% of calories from protein and the rest will come from carbohydrates. Now the point of a ketogenic diet is to encourage the body to make ketones. Ketones are a cleaner form of energy and they are easier to use for energy when you compare them to glucose or that sugar we were talking about before. And when you focus your diet on healthy fats, you encourage your body to make and use ketones. And eventually your body will get efficient at using ketones as a fuel. When I say they're a cleaner form of energy, I'm talking about the mitochondria. These are the power factories that are present in Every cell, almost every cell we have, red blood cells don't have mitochondria. Um, as you can imagine, neurons, they have a lot of mitochondria because the brain is a very active organ. It's never gonna stop working. When mitochondria have to use sugar for fuel, it's kind of like being a fuel guzzling vehicle. You put the gas in, but you get a lot of harmful byproducts and you don't get as many miles to the gallon. You know, we, we evolved, you know, Remember, I think many of us on this webinar are old enough to remember uh, the days before the Prius and uh, electric cars. Um, now, ketones are like energy efficient fuel. You, and we're going to continue this car metaphor. They're going to get you way more miles to the gallon, and there are not nearly as many harmful byproducts. So when you have symptoms of cognitive decline, your brain is already in a starvation state. You remember, we talked about how insulin resistance can make it difficult for sugar to get inside the brain cells. When you have ketones that are plentiful in your body, that's not an issue. The ketones are gonna be able to get into the brain cells and they will be able to give them vital nutrition. And this is why my first intervention for every patient I meet, whether or not they have current symptoms, is to start shifting them onto a ketogenic diet. We follow their progress with devices like Biosense, which allow you to breathe out into this machine. And the machine will estimate the amount of ketones in your blood based on the reading. I also make sure that all of my patients are working with a health coach who can support them in shifting their diet. Many coaches are trained in the Recode protocol and they can really be of tremendous value. They know how to help people make these changes. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to work on nutrition if you are worried about dementia. You cannot expect to keep eating sugar and refined carbohydrates on a regular basis without it affecting your memory down the line. And when I say refined carbohydrates, I'm really talking about bread and pasta and cookies, all these sorts of packaged foods. You know, many of us love those foods. You know, we, we grew up eating them. Um, and even though having 
too many potatoes or beets, you know, can make it hard to achieve ketosis if you're trying to be shifting towards that ketogenic diet for brain health. So we have people incorporate lots of non-starchy vegetables. And this is really also why you need to keep track of whether or not you're in ketosis. It can sound a little mean or harsh maybe to hear that you need to make a lot of nutrition changes. Um, but you have to remember that the changes that are impacting the brain that are causing the memory loss, all of this takes decades to develop. What I'm, what I'm doing now at age 43 is absolutely going to impact how well my brain is working when I'm 65 or 70. We can also work at getting into ketosis by implementing time-restricted eating or fasting, as many people know it. And this really just means restricting your eating to an eight to 12 hour window. This can help your body shift into ketone production way more quickly. And when you think about it, it's because you're keeping food away from your system for a longer period of time. The body still needs to keep working. So it's going to produce ketones to do that. And as long as you don't have a lot of carbohydrate stores, that ketone production, you know, will, will keep going. And the bonus is that it will tend to use the fat that we already have to produce ketones when we're not eating. So for people who are really wishing or hoping to lose weight, you know, this approach can be very helpful for that as well. So sleep is another non-negotiable lifestyle factor that we have to address. Um, this is often one of the first things I look at. I, I can't tell you how many people have told me that they don't snore and they don't have any problem sleeping, but then we do a home sleep test and we can see that they're stopping breathing and they're dropping their oxygen numbers at night. You remember that we talked about with that vascular subtype, when there's not enough blood getting to the brain cells, you're going to have an inflammatory response. In this situation, again, when you're not able to get in a good breath at night, you're not getting in enough oxygen, you're not nourishing the brain cells the way they need to be. And again, those cells will eventually die. Sleep issues like, like sleep apnea, um, upper airway resistance, and the like, you know, these are things that we can actually fix pretty easily. Um, we actually have a lot of options aside from masks. There are certain dentists who specialize in sleep disorders. Um, they can help with making mouth devices that will shift the jaw forward and make the airway bigger. This makes it easier to breathe and maintain your oxygen levels. Sometimes though, the sleep issue is really so bad that we do need something like CPAP or BiPAP. This can be a game changer um, for so many people. I have seen a number of patients who've been sleeping badly for so long, they don't even know what real rest is. And then even if your sleep study is normal, we have to make sure that you're sleeping seven to eight hours per night. Lots of people have trouble with sleep, whether that's getting to sleep, staying asleep or both. The reason why the amount of sleep is so important is because of this entity called the glymphatic system. We only really recently discovered this. Uh, it's been in the last five to 10 years. Um, and it's a special drainage system for the brain. You've probably all heard of lymph, lymphatics. You're familiar perhaps that this is like a network of vessels separate from blood vessels that are throughout our body. They help with draining our cells of toxins and waste and just getting rid of it. Well, this is what the glymphatic system does for the brain. Um, it basically has these waves of fluid glymph um, that help wash out toxic byproducts. And that system is really active at nighttime. This makes sense. If the brain is busy during the day, which it tends to be, it's not going to have a lot of resources to devote to cleaning itself. We're supposed to be getting enough deep sleep every night so that the brain can do the cleanup at that time. If we're not sleeping well, the brain's not going to get a chance to do this. And once again, we're going to get accumulation, you know, of waste and toxins, and you know what will happen in that situation, amyloid. Amyloid's gonna pop up again, and, and now we're kind of stuck in the, back in that cycle. It's really essential that you understand what is going on with your sleep. Everybody needs a sleep study, and they probably need monitoring sleep studies over time. We really have to optimize sleep from the behavior perspective as well. If you have a normal sleep study, that's great, but if you're not sleeping enough, we have to really dig into understanding why you aren't and figure out how we're gonna help. 
So we all know that exercise is good for us and, and brain health is really no exception to this. It turns out that regular movement and exercise will increase the level of a growth factor called BDNF. That stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And if you break down all of that, it really just means a growth factor that works on neurons and it comes from the brain. The best way to increase this is daily exercise, bar none. There, there really is um, no other way that is as comparable. And I'm not talking about CrossFit. I, I'm talking about a long walk or a couple short walks. Um, you could be doing a 10 minute yoga exercise on the computer. Yoga with Adrian is a wonderful channel if anybody's curious about doing that. And I, I, cause I think that a lot of us get stuck with, with building exercise into our lives because we think it has to be this really crazy 45 to 60 minute extravaganza at a gym where we're sweating, we're really going crazy. It does not have to be that to be effective. And we even have recent data about how many steps it takes to actually maintain good health. You know, we always talk about daily steps. And for a while, we've all been talking about how 10,000 steps, 10,000 steps is really the, the right steps. But actually a more recent study is showing that even six to 8,000 steps was a substantial improvement in many health parameters. And honestly, it's not that much. Uh, the daily walk that I take with my dogs is about 30, 35 minutes in the morning. I'm not going fast at all. Um, I get about 4,500 steps just from that. Some of my patients, uh, they'll take a walk in between meetings or they'll even do meetings while they're walking if, if they can you know, call in. Um, other people are walking after they've eaten a meal. That actually offers a lot of benefits when you're trying to improve insulin sensitivity. Um, another benefit of the exercise is that when it comes to cognitive decline, it can lower cortisol levels. And this is especially true for those nice walks and those short yoga and stretching sessions. Um, cortisol is one of the stress hormones and too much cortisol shrinks the parts of the brain that store memories, the, called the hippocampus. And this is one reason why uncontrolled stress can eventually impact your memory. For people who have a significant contribution from that vascular category, you know, they've got really high blood pressure, maybe they've got some problems with cholesterol, maybe they've had a history of mild stroke, things like that. You know, we know that their vessels need help. And when it comes to exercise, there's actually a specific form of exercise that may benefit those people. Um, and it's called EWAT, which stands for exercise with oxygen therapy. Usually people are on an exercise bike and they'll pedal while they're breathing from this additional oxygen source. They have a mask and they'll do that for a short time. And then the mask comes off and then they just pedal and breathe in room air. And this actually acts as a beneficial stress on the body. It helps improve blood flow in those vessels um, because it's increasing production of a substance called nitric oxide. You know, nitric oxide, it helps blood vessels go, you get bigger. So you go from little, you know, to wider. So EWOC can be really, really um, important for people who've got, you know, a known vascular um, type contribution to their cognitive decline. The last ways that I wanna really mention that we can be helping the brain thrive and heal are gonna be through brain training and stimulation. And these are actually two different things. Brain training literally means practicing skills. This is most easily done with a program like Brain HQ, as in, as in headquarters. There are exercises there that target specific areas like memory, processing speed, attention, and navigation. That's um, kind of like a gym for the brain, but you know, instead of working your abs, your arms, and your legs, you're going to be working these different abilities that can be at risk uh, with Alzheimer's. Uh, brain HQ has been studied. There is data to support its role in improving scores on cognitive testing. And if, again, if you are aware of Dr. Bredesen's Apollo website and you have an account on that site, you actually do have complimentary access to Brain HQ. Now, brain stimulation, again, really just means direct stimulation of neurons. And there's been some really exciting research on this um, in the last uh, 10 years, really looking at light therapy, which is called uh, photobiomodulation, and then also looking at sound therapy. And in both situations, the person is exposed to light or sound at specific frequencies. And it turns out that certain frequencies can act on brain tissue and encourage cellular repair processes. That can mean increased blood flow, 
decrease inflammation, increase brain connections. And obviously all of those things are gonna help decrease that amyloid protein buildup. There are devices that are available directly to consumers and others that are owned by practitioners and used on patients for a certain number of sessions in an office. Um, I have a friend and a colleague uh, who may be on this uh, webinar tonight, uh, Jill Keenan. She's actually a nurse and a Recode health coach. And she, you know, has recently um, been, been starting to work with people, um, you know, with a, a frequency device like this. I'm really excited to start referring some people to her to, to, see, to see what's happening with that. I think it's important to say, though, that I think devices and brain HQ in and of themselves alone, they're not going to prevent or reverse cognitive decline. They have to be used as part of a larger plan that's going to address underlying issues. And earlier I said that we have to understand the major underlying causes of somebody's cognitive decline to prevent further deterioration and possibly reverse this. We just finished talking about all the different ways that we have to support the brain in healing. Now I want to think about how we look into those big drivers that we discussed at the very beginning, the inflammatory, the glycotoxic, the atrophic, the toxic, the vascular, and the traumatic subtypes. The reality is that there are very few people who fall into just one category. Almost everyone is going to have little pieces from a number of different categories that are contributing to their cognitive decline. The first step in understanding the drivers is blood work a lot of blood work. Uh, my initial recode panel involves about 15 or 16 tubes of blood. I test for all basics, like a complete blood count, a comprehensive metabolic panel and lipids, but I'm also gonna be adding on a lot of markers for inflammation, for nutrient and hormone status, uh, some toxic burden um, screening tests, and, and also antioxidant capacity. And all of this blood work and the history that I take is gonna give me a sense of what subtypes I need to focus on first. It's really common that I see signs of inflammation on the blood panel. Well, now I've got to start looking for where the inflammation is coming from. Is it a reactivated infection like Epstein-Barr virus? Does this person have a lot of imbalance in their gut microbiome, which what we call dysbiosis? Uh, do they have evidence of autoimmunity? Um, do they possibly have an undiagnosed food sensitivity? The panel will also show me hormone levels. Um, and if they have low, really low estrogen and testosterone, well, should we be replacing that? Are they a good candidate for that? Um, if their thyroid is off, why is that? Um, how, can we, how can we work with that? Um, what, in the beginning of an evaluation, I have to ask a lot of big picture questions. Um, how well are people digesting their food? Um, how balanced is their immune system? Is there a possibility that Lyme disease or mold could be involved? You know, they're often really not diagnosed early on. Sometimes people are sick for years before we figure out that that's what it is. Um, and how am I going to manage that? If I do find that it's Lyme or mold, what am I going to do about that? So as you can see, you know, these evaluations, they can get complicated sometimes very quickly. Um, and I think that they should be complicated. You know, when we're talking about cognitive decline, the stakes are very high. Um, we have to spend time understanding as much as we can about what's going on. And we really need to get things right, because if we miss things, we may miss a chance for, for recovery. I think it's important to just mention the evidence that we have about this whole approach being effective. Um, you know, many practitioners have seen it work, I've seen it work, but obviously if we can have some structured data, that is always gonna be the best. And it turns out that we do. A really exciting clinical trial was published involving 100 patients. Uh, these patients were all documented to have mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease um, or a pre-Alzheimer's type of cognitive impairment. And they documented this with cognitive testing, with imaging, like a volumetric MRI, a PET scan. Um, they were being treated by a number of different physicians who applied the RECODE approach that we've been discussing. And the results were really amazing. Over 80% of these patients showed improvement, both subjectively, like they felt like they were better, their family felt that they were better, and in terms of their cognitive testing and their imaging. They were actually seeing some people who had these really low volumes of hippocampus, that's the area of the brain that stores memories, the hippocampus was getting bigger, like over time, it, just insane, absolutely amazing over the course of one year. And to really understand how amazing it is that 80% of these people were actually improved, 
you have to look at what's happening in the pharmaceutical world. Um, there's a drug called aducanumab that was recently approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's type dementia. This is an antibody. It targets amyloid buildup in people's brains. You know, you would think the results should be really impressive, but they're just, they're not. I mean, over the course of the studies, no one got better in terms of their cognition. One third of the people, they had a slowing of their cognitive decline. And the rest of the people, nothing happened. They just progressed. So you really have to think about this. I mean, 33% of people, they just continued to get worse, but they just got worse more slowly. They didn't get better. And that was the best that the drug could do. And the drug is terribly expensive. It costs about $56,000 a year per person. Do you know how many people you could put through a recode evaluation and treatment plan for that money? Um, it boggles my mind. You know, having so many people improve in a trial involving cognitive decline really has never happened with drug trials. And I'm hoping that by now you may have a sense of why. You can try to pull the amyloid protein out of the brain, but unless you address the reasons why it showed up in the first place, and unless you support the brain in healing with the right nutrition and lifestyle plans, you're not going to get anywhere in the long term. I just want to briefly tell the story of a couple of people that I worked with before we stopped for questions. And I'm going to call the first person, Lou, not his real name. Uh, when he and his wife found me, uh, he was 81 years old. The two of them were very into Dr. Bredesen's work. They'd read the book. Um, they'd already put a lot of the program recommendations into place. But still, Lou really felt like his memory was starting to slip. He was having more trouble saying what he wanted to, a lot of word-finding difficulty. Uh, his MOCA score was 25 out of 30, and anything under 26 is considered abnormal, though some people actually think it should be anything under 28. So he started tracking his ketones. Um, turns out he was rarely in ketosis. When we looked at his food together, we realized it was because he was eating way too much fruit. You know, he thought fruit was healthy and that, that he should have more fruit, but it was knocking him out of ketosis. So he really wasn't getting that benefit. I did that broad intake panel that I was talking about and his homocysteine was really high, um, which showed problems with a process called methylation. He was a lifelong gardener and he did not wear any protective masks or gloves when he was working with chemicals. And he'd also grown up around a lot of farms. He lived out in the country. I decided that we would do some environmental toxin testing on him and his glyphosate levels were way above the 95th percentile. Um, many of you know that that's a pesticide uh, used very commonly, um, unfortunately, in our food. And so when I saw that, I figured that this was probably a big contributor to what was going on. And I put him through a targeted protocol to get that level down. We also focused on foods and supplements to really support a healthy homocysteine level. And within a year, he was feeling a lot better. Uh, his primary care physician said he couldn't believe how good he looked. His MOCA score actually had gone up to 28 out of 30. And so it was a, a really nice story. Uh, the next person I'm going to call Linda, again, not her real name. Uh, when we met, she was 63 years old and she was really scared. Um, for at least two years, she'd been noticing a steady decline in her short-term memory. Uh, she was having trouble organizing tasks at work. She was wondering if she was going to have to leave her job. And she, you know, her history was just very interesting in that she was an ApoE44 carrier, meaning she had that much higher risk of progressing from cognitive decline to full-blown Alzheimer's. And when we went through that process of transitioning her nutrition and doing the initial workup to understand why this was happening, you know, we found out that her estrogen levels were undetectable. And of course, it's normal for women in menopause to have low estrogen. But when it gets undetectable, I, I get concerned. Um, and you have to remember because that estrogen is one of those trophic factors. It, it keeps neuron connections. She had a lot of numbness in her feet. She had some joint pain that was really hard to pin down. Uh, we identified some food sensitivities that she did not know about. Um, we also eventually pursued a toxins evaluation, found that she had very high levels of the mold toxin called ochratoxin A. Among other things, I, I put her on an estrogen replacement plan. Um, we started um, some gentle detox support. Um, and within a month, she was really noticing some positive changes, um, which was exciting. We're now moving into sort of some more specific treatments uh, for the mold, which is going to be a longer term process. I expect it's going to take us you know, months to you know, maybe up to a year to, to really work on that. And I'm telling these stories because I think it's important to see how cognitive decline can look different depending on who the people are, their particular exposures, their genetics. I think it's important to come back to this question of money. Um, you may remember earlier, I talked about the cost of my mother living in a nursing facility with the roommate being around $7,000 a month. 
that would be $84,000 per year. When I think about what both of these patients spent for visits, for workups, for, for treatments, you know, they maybe spent about $7,000 over the course of one and a half to two years. And that again was really for, for everything. Um, and I come back to that because so many times I hear people say that they just don't know that they you know, can afford to kind of go down this road of looking into the cognitive decline. They don't you know, know that they you know, kind of want to go there and they're afraid that they won't be able to afford things. I honestly just don't know how we can't afford to do this. I feel like we have to do this. It's a, it's just like going to, it's going to, it's going to break us, you know, it's going to break us financially and it's really going to impact our families. So I really, really enjoyed uh, getting to talk to all of you tonight. I, I hope that you come away from this, having learned something new, um, having learned some more about what causes cognitive decline and, and what you can actually do about it. And I will be happy to stop for questions now. Thank you so much, Dr. Montavo. That was really, really good information. It makes you want to change a lot of things in your daily life and your lifestyle for sure. Um, like Dr. Montavo said, we're going to open up the class to questions from the audience. Um, so a couple have already come in. Um, Sylvia wrote in and she said, Dr. Schultz had a supplement called Brain Support, which was really helpful. Um, is there anything you recommend that's maybe similar to that product? Yeah, so a lot of um, those supplements from Dr. Schultz uh, were a lot from Claire. Um, so, so Claire does have a, a brain support blend. Um, I actually, though, if I'm going to be thinking about um, just brain support in general, um, I probably would say I like the Research Nutritionals um, brand a lot, where they've got one that's actually a BDNF um, type of uh like an analog, it's not quite as good as, as exercising, but but there is you know some some analog there and some whole like coffee fruit extract, which is probably the closest sort of supplement we have to that can like increase BDNF. Um, so so I like the research nutritionals, um, you know, brain support and and I can certainly um, if you are curious about you know the the exact name of that, you know, I can answer that question. If you, you know, want to call, leave a message with the office, you know, I'm happy to, to get back to you um, on like what particular blend from research nutritionals I think is a good one. That's great. Um, somebody else just wrote in and said, could you discuss cost slash insurance? I know that's a big deal for a lot of people. So could you maybe break that down a little bit? Sure. So, so I think that the, the unfortunate reality is that insurance has not come to a place where they are really focused on preventive health or, uh, and, and that's, this is sort of an overall issue with just the health paradigm um, in general. So what we try to do with insurance is we try to get insurance to pay for what they will pay for. So we try to get as much blood work covered under insurance. And we will often draw blood either through labs such as Quest or LabCorp, and they'll submit to insurance. Um, we'll do, if it's a specialty blood draw, you know, we may do that in our office. And sometimes depending on what blood draw we're talking about, occasionally certain things will be covered by insurance. For example, um, there's a specialty lab called Igenix that we use frequently for um, when we're looking for tick-related infections. Um, Medicare, generally speaking, will pay. Um, for hygienics testing. Um, other insurances won't necessarily, so, so it, it does vary quite a bit. Um, so with testing, we try to get as much of that covered by insurance as we can. For the actual visits that we do, unfortunately, because our visits are so long, um, it's not feasible for us to have the insurance rate. Um, that, that's, that's, it's a really unfortunate thing. When I meet somebody and we're doing a cognitive decline evaluation, I spend 90 minutes um, we, we do screening, um, pretty extensive history in the office, and all of our follow-up visits are pretty much going to be 45 to 60 minutes. So we spend you know, a, a lot of time. And unfortunately, um, time is not what reinsurance companies reimburse for. They reimburse for diagnosis codes. And they decide, you know, based on the diagnosis code, you know, well, well how long, you know, just what, what we're going to pay for a certain visit. Um, and, you know, we really want to be able to give people great service and, and we want to really kind of walk this road with them in terms of, you know, the journey. Unfortunately, we wouldn't be able to keep the doors open, I think, if we were relying on insurance. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. And I, I know that's always a concern for people. So I appreciate you just kind of addressing that head on. Um, and it makes sense because really Dr. Montavo, her team are looking at the whole person, mind, body, and really getting to the root cause. So of course, it's going to take more time than um, like a normal doctor visit. So I appreciate that. Um, let's see, we have another question. This is interesting. Um, what are some ways that you can test memory loss in a loved one, maybe at home. Are there any mm -hmm. tips for that? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so if the person is able and willing to sit down at a computer, I love CNS vital signs. I think that that is really a great assessment. Um, you it takes about 30, 40 minutes um, on a computer at home, pretty easy to do. Um, if that feels like it's not um, available, um, to you. There is actually kind of a proxy survey that we'll use sometimes. It's called the AQ21. And it's meant to be answered by a family member or just somebody who's close to the person who spends a lot of time with them. And that in and of itself, that little survey provides a score. And the higher that score is, the more likely you know that that cognitive decline is an issue. I just had another question come in and it's kind of the the opposite. Um, Dr. Montavo, do you test patients for memory improvement and how so? So yes, and in many ways with some of the same things that I was just talking about. So, so the CNS vital signs is really one of my favorite tools to document improvement over time. I'll often have people do that assessment every four to six months so that we can just see what's going on. Are they plateaued? Are they improving? You know, are they are they are they getting worse? Um, you can also use the MOCA, you can use a slums. These are sort of more office-based assessments uh, that are validated. And you, as I was you know, sort of mentioning my, my guy Lou with his you know, initial score was 28, went up to, I'm sorry, 25 out of 30, went up to 28 out of 30 after you know, we had done some work together. So yes, we definitely you know, routinely do you know, some assessment of where are people. We, we definitely wanna know uh, that people are, are getting better. Absolutely. Um... And that's great. That's great to know that, uh, you know, there's the opposite test for that. Um, another question just came in, and this is a great one. How do I roll out the possibility that the medications I'm taking are actually affecting my memory? Oh, I love that is a really, really wonderful question. Oh, and the short story is that sometimes you, you need to work with your clinician, um, or our, someone like our team to, to think about, did your problems with memory, did they coincide with starting a new medication or with being on that medication for, let's say three to six months? Um, I think that most medications that have a track record of impacting memory, you know, you can start to usually see it within the first few months of being on that medication. Sometimes it's even more obvious, like right away, you know, people are just like, I started this thing last week and, you know, suddenly I, I can't remember anything. I can't think. So certainly you have to think about, did your symptoms come up in relation, you know, to that medication or when a new medication was added to a mix of other medications, that's a very common reason why, people, you know, can, can get sort of this acute, you know, memory issue, you get polypharmacy, you know, medications can interact. Um, and sometimes it's hard to keep track of, you know, quite frankly, it can be hard to know what, what meds may be interacting. So I think it takes a very high degree of suspicion. And sometimes you need to kind of come back off of some right. meds to see, you know, what's happening with people's memory. Um, I'd say probably the biggest offender that I can think of off the top of my head is going to be benzodiazepines. Um, you know, long-term, so you're at Ativan, Clonopin, um, you know, Xanax, things like that. Um, these are commonly prescribed for anxiety and a long-term though, they can really be detrimental to, to the brain. We, we know that for sure. Right. Right. And you, you don't even think about that when you're in the no, moment and you're, no, you're taking right. those medications, you're not really necessarily thinking of your, your cognitive health. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question. Um, another one just came in. They said, Alzheimer's runs in my family. What can I start doing right now today to start to prevent memory loss? So I think that you are somebody, if it's running in your family, um, document your APOE status. You know, it's going to be because if you happen to be an APOE4 or 4-4, you know, you are going to need 
to be very careful about inflammation. And you may need more support from supplements that can really tame inflammation. These are things like curcumin, sulforaphane, um, things that we you know commonly commonly use in our clinic. The biggest thing you can start doing right now, though, is shifting your nutrition. Um, if you're not already um, following, you know, a very nutrient dense whole foods based eating plan, that's definitely where you want to go to. You really want to be minimizing your your simple carbs, you know, your refined carbs, all of those things. Those are your sort of those are like your special occasion foods, you know, um, those aren't right. things that um, we can really be eating on a really regular basis. So you really, you definitely want to know where are you with your blood sugar management? Cause that's going to be very important. Do you have even now um, signs of unchecked inflammation? And a lot of this can be picked up with pretty basic blood work, um, a C-reactive protein, um, a ferritin. There's, there's certainly, you know, certainly a, a number of things that we check for pretty routinely that can give us a sense of, of are you already pretty inflamed? Absolutely. Yeah. It really does come down to eating just a really good, clean diet. A big part of it does. That's the, that's the foundation where we can't out supplement a bad diet. I, I like to tell people this. I think that many people are hoping that if I add just another supplement that, you know, they're going to be able to keep eating that cake every day, but you it really doesn't work. Out. <laughs> yeah. If only that would be great. We would all do that, but it really does come down to inflammation and just eating the best diet you can. Um, a question just came in, which is really interesting. It said, should I limit um, my consumption of TV, both on my phone and, you know, on a regular TV? Does that influence um, cognitive decline? Yeah, that is that is a, a really, really awesome question. Um, and I will <laughs> say, that I, 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 I love this question. So I will say that I don't think we have data that says directly you watch lots of TV that you're, you're going to have cognitive decline. What I will say though, is that if what you're watching, um, is, uh, stressful and, and upsetting a lot of the time, if you're, you know, kind of an adrenaline junkie with your, your, uh, your shows and things that you like, um, remember what I was saying about cortisol and um, that's real, you know, that, you know, lots of cortisol over time, you know, will definitely shrink key areas of the brain that are responsible for storing memories. So part of it is a question of, well, what are you watching? And it's a question of how are you watching? Are you right. watching TV and having it disrupt your sleep? Are you the kind of person who's, you know, in bed watching TV? And so, you know, you don't close your eyes till midnight or one because you got involved in a show that you liked. Um, and are you someone who's watching TV late at night and that blue light is now making it hard for you to fall asleep, right? So, so there can certainly be these secondary effects from TV screens in general um, that, that can be, I think, impacting. I don't think we have a study yet that says, oh, X hours of TV a week means you're going to get cognitive decline. Uh, but right, I can definitely exactly. see how the, in, indirectly it could be related, I, I'm sure. Absolutely. I think we all need to take a break from our phones and TV. <laughs> yeah. and TV yeah, no, after, get, get away from your screens after this webinar. You need to go do something. Get away else. from your screens, everyone. <laughs> yes. Go meditate, <laughs> do some yoga, some deep breathing. Um, well, let me see. That looks like one more came through. Oh, this is a great one. Can chronic depression affect memory loss? That's really, really good. Yep. Um, it definitely can. And, and that is, you know, likely, um, depression at the end of the day is inflammatory. Um, many people who are depressed have some kind of neuroinflammation, brain inflammation going on. The question of course is why? Um, and that may not be the only reason that they're depressed, but it tends to be a pretty big contributor. We have a lot of data that really looks at inflammatory markers and people with depressed mood. Um, the other way that that can happen is cortisol. Um, actually yet again, um, cortisol, is you know also tied to depression. So if you are you have a high cortisol state depression, and there are low cortisol state depressions, but if you have a high cortisol state depression, um, again you're going to be directly you know really shrinking key parts of the brain um, that are responsible for memory storage. So right. I think that, and often you know we have to sometimes that people as they get depressed, you know they are they are you know less. Um, they're, they're less with it. They're, they're not, you know, remembering as much. And sometimes we have to really think about, you know, well, how much of this is, is a depression issue that we have to go after, but at, really it, we're going after the same mechanisms. You know, we're going mm -hmm. after inflammation. We're, we're going after the cortisol. 
Right. And it makes sense. And too, if you're depressed, you're probably not exercising as yep. often as you probably, should you probably don't want to eat a healthy diet. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot, well. right? Exactly. Exactly. And you're, you're probably not breathing as well. Um, so very interesting. These were all such great questions. I know we probably can't get to them all tonight. Dr. Montavo, thank you so much. This was such yep. good information. This topic affects everyone. Um, and it's inspired me to put away the sugar, put away the bad stuff and eat really well. Um, leave it, leave it for the holidays, leave it for the holidays. And, you know, yes. that, that's, that's kind of how we have to think about the sugar, I think. Well, it's a good reminder. And, and also please share this information with your loved ones. Um, like Dr. Montavo said, you don't want to pay, have to pay for this and, and just to see a loved one suffer, um, you know, with any type of cognitive decline. So please share this with family and friends. Um, so thank you again to everyone for joining us. Please, in the meantime, visit us at forumhealth.com. Um, connect with us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and we have tons of great content. Uh, Dr. Montavo has done other videos on a variety of different topics. So please connect with us there. And um, thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Montavo. Thank you for everyone for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank, thanks so much, everybody. And thanks so much, Britt. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.